David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered round him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. And now for the second part of today's Bible reading. This will be found in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 8 to 23. These are the names of David's mighty warriors. Joshib Bashebeth, a Tecomanite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men, whom he killed in one encounter. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai the Ahoite. As one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pastamim for battle. Then the Israelites retreated, but Eleazar stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. Next to him was Shammah, son of Aji, the Hararite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. During harvest time, three of the thirty chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Raphim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors. Abishai, the son of Joab, son of Zeruah, was the chief of the three. He raised his spear against the three hundred men whom he killed, and so he became as famous as the three. Was he not held in greater honor than the three? He became their commander, even though he was not included among them. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant fighter from Kabzeel, performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion, and he struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. He too was as famous as the three mighty warriors. He was held in great honor, he was held in greater honor than any of the thirty, but he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. A few years ago, the Archbishop of Canterbury visited you. Right in your living room, he performed the necessary rites to make you the future monarch of England. The reigning monarch is not happy about this, and you can understand why. You are now the most wanted person in England. You have become the focus of the English army. 
the police, the MI5, and even the traffic wardens are all watching out for you. Every camera, every drone, every satellite have been programmed to report your whereabouts. There is no place to hide. You seek refuge in an enemy territory, but even there, you are in big trouble because you are an enemy of the enemy. What would you do? Thankfully, this is not your situation. But this was the life-threatening situation David was in in today's passage. We've been looking at the life of David for some weeks now. And in extraordinary circumstances, we've seen how David was anointed a future king of Israel. Saul, the reigning king, was not happy about this. And we cannot understand why. Saul was envious of David's anointing. He was envious of his fame, his skills, and his bravery. So he wanted David dead by all means. In fact, he tried to kill him twice. However, Jonathan, Saul's son, was unlike his father. Last week, we saw that Jonathan, who was in line to the throne, was willing to give David his future throne so that he could be second to him. When Jonathan realized that David's life was in danger and his dad wanted him dead, he helped David escape. What a friend Jonathan was. Now, in today's passage, which we've just read, uh, 1 Psalm 22, you would realize that it is two chapters away from where we left off last week. So I'm going to fill you in. That's 1 Psalm 21. 1 Samuel, sorry, not Psalm. 1 Samuel 21. After David left Jonathan to escape Saul, he went to Ahimelech, the high priest. Ahimelech was trembling and was hesitant to give David any assistance because he knew that if he did, he was a dead man. David, desperately needing Ahimelech's help, lied to Ahimelech. He said to Ahimelech that he was on a mission for Saul the king. I mean, this left Ahimelech no option but to give David all the assistance he required and all the supplies he needed. So he did. He gave David everything he needed. Anyway, he was skilled for doing that later on, we see. With all these supplies, you would expect David to run to a very faraway country for safety. But no, David went to Gath. Now, if you've been following the series so far, you'll be asking yourself, why on earth would David go to Gath? Gath is where Goliath was from. Goliath was the Philistine champion David defeated. It was insanely suicidal for him to go to Gath. Now, he gets to Gath. The servants of Gath recognize him. Isn't that David, the guy who killed our champion? They fetched him, took him to their king, Achish. Now, this is the point where you would expect David to wee on himself and see his life flash before him and tremble. But David had other plans. He pretended to be a madman. He made marks on the doors, allowed saliva to run down his beard, behaved funny, and Akish got confused. So Akish went ballistic against his servants. Now, let's see what Akish said in 1 Samuel 21, 14 to 15, which is page 249 on the same page 
from which we read the earlier passage. 1 Samuel 21, 14 to 15. Look at the man. He is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Oh, I, I bet David was like that. Thank God. The king drove them out, out, away from his presence. This is where today's passage actually starts. Now, to look at what we have to talk about in the two passages we have today, I want us to consider them in three main themes so that we can grab what God wants to tell us. So the first one will be desire for the king, the second one deeds with the king, and the third one devotion to the king. Desire for the king, deeds with the king, devotion to the king. Let's start with the first one, desire for the king. Please turn with me to page, well actually we are on that page, page 294 if you have the English Bible. 1 Samuel 21, 1 and 2, our first passage. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brother and his father's household, sorry, when his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered round him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. Now, I have a question here. Where would you expect to find a future king? In a cave or in a castle? Now, who would you expect to visit a king? A VIP, that is a very important person, or a DID, that is someone in distress, indebted, or discontented? We all say a VIP, of course. Today's passage starts with something really interesting, which is counterintuitive. We don't see people going to a king in the castle, and we don't see very important people going to the king. We see DIDs. David left Gath and escaped to the cave Adullam. In ancient times, caves were sometimes used as tombs. As we all remember, Jesus was buried in a tomb. They were more like graves. So David's last resort was a cave, which is a grave. He was a dead man anyway. Adullam means refuge. Where else could he go than to the place of refuge? You could see the desperate situation he was in. Now, in the cave, something unexpected happened. His family came to him, and about 400 people joined him there. Why will all these people desire to be with David in a cavey grave? Someone who, is, who has nothing to write home about. I mean, at that point, I tell you why. His family joined him there because their lives were in danger too. As I mentioned, Ahimelech was killed. David wanted to kill anyone who was an ally. Sorry, Saul wanted to kill anyone who was an ally to David. So his family were in trouble. They had to run to David there. We see further down the page in verses 3 to 5 that David left his family in Mizpah for safekeeping. They came for safety. They didn't come to sympathize, no. The 400 people joined David because they were DIDs, distressed, indebted, discontented. What do these mean? 
Distressed people are people suffering from extreme anxiety, sorrow, or pain. Indebted people, as we would know, are people who owe other people some money. Discontented people are people who are dissatisfied. David's family joined because they were running away from Saul's wrath. The other people joined because they were fed up with Saul's reign. Both groups had nothing to lose in desiring to be with David. They had to choose either to be under Saul's bondage or to be identified with David's brokenness. David had nothing to give them, neither did Saul. Now, you would realize also that David did not reject any of them. I would have surely had a cap, to be honest. Because cramming 400 plus people in a cave is not ideal, no matter how big the cave is. Think of food. Think of water. Think of the heat they will produce. Think of personal hygiene, to say the least. Think of security. Think of the smell, and so on and so forth. But he did not reject anyone on grounds of low financial status or emotional status whatsoever. And it's ironic that people would prefer a weak and powerless fugitive to a reigning king. It doesn't make sense. They deserted their old commander Saul and desired their new commander David. They made the right decision because David would not stay in the grave forever. Saul would die and David would ascend the throne. He would turn these DIDs into VIPs. Now in the Old Testament, there is another story like David's. In Judges 13, we are told of Jephthah, who was outlawed, but common people gathered around him. They desired him. Jephthah also became their commander. He had his troop and he made various exploits. In the New Testament, we are also told of a king who was rejected by reigning officials. He was the most wanted person then. He was wanted dead not because of the wrongs he had done, but out of sheer envy. However, people desired him and came to him. The lowly people, the ordinary people. He was friends to the unlearned, both men and women. This man is Jesus. Unlike David, Jesus was arrested. He was beaten, he was crucified. He was buried in a cavey grave like David. On the third day, he rose triumphantly from the grave to ascend his everlasting throne. He became the head and commander of the greatest and most triumphant army in the world, the church. Jesus is the only king who has power to turn poor DIDs like you and me into VIPs. Oh yes, you heard me right, we are all DIDs. I tell you why. What is more distressing than to know that death is not the end of the road, but the entrance into eternal damnation for anyone without their savior? Which death is weightier than the death of our sins? Who in this world is not discontented with injustice, with suffering, with war, with poverty, with sickness, and in fact, with Brexit? For now, Jesus may seem weak against the atheist arguments. For now, Jesus may seem powerless to answer your prayers the way you expect him to. For now, Jesus may not have that power to reveal himself to you as you would want him to so you could believe. For now, his gospel may sound unappealing and unrealistic. But think of it, which would you prefer? A DID in the kingdom of this world or a VIP 
in the kingdom Jesus offers. Jesus, the king of kings, is calling to us. Now, let's listen to his call in Revelation 3.20. And I read that. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and I will sup with him and he with me. He desires to be with you. And he desires that you would be with him. Will you open the door of your heart to him? Choose Jesus and he will make you a VIP. David's VIPs formed a community with remarkable deeds. So let's look at the deeds with the king. So two deeds with the king. There are 31 chapters between our first passage, that is 1 Samuel 22, and our second passage, that's 2 Samuel 23. These chapters chronicle the hide-and-seek game David played with Saul in the desert or in the wilderness when he was on the run. Now Saul died later on. David conquered a lot of enemies and Israel became David's new kingdom. So he reigned over Israel. You would expect that when David ascended the throne, he lived happily ever after. End of story. But no, he had many problems. In fact, a lot of problems. Now we see David's downfall in 2 Samuel 11. He had one of his mighty men killed so that he could take his wife. He had a dysfunctional family at a point. He had to go on the run, running away from his own son Absalom as a fugitive. After Absalom's death, David continued his conquests. In 2 Samuel 23, David gives his last words in the first part of that chapter. And then our passage today starts from verse 8. To Samuel 23, we get the opportunity of knowing David's mighty men, their deeds. Now, even though the passage describes individual victories, so it talks about individual people with what they've done, 2 Samuel 21 15 actually tells us that some of these battles were fought with, with David. So, David fought with his men, they fought with their king, they had great deeds with their king. Some of us like action movies, don't we? Most action movies have violence and vengeance. Although we abhor violence in real life, we are sometimes apathetic to it in movies. The kind of battles we see here in 2 Samuel 23 are unlike those we see in most action movies. We see bravery, we see brutality, we see bloodshed on a big scale. They have all the action you would want in an action movie, only that this time they are real. That's a scary thought. We also see that God was involved in these wars. Now, some of us will start asking the question, if God gave victories through wars, does God glorify wars? That's a big question, and I'll need a whole sermon to address this question. But, permit me to spend three minutes in attempting to answer that. Now, to answer why God was involved in the Old Testament wars, we have to understand God's character. God promised Israel, that's David's ancestors, that he would make a great nation through their lineage. 
a mighty king would emerge from their lineage through whom the whole world would be blessed. There were no wars in the original plan, but you see, because God is faithful, he would do anything to keep his promises. Whenever a nation threatened any of his promises, he stood by his promises and protected it. If the threats were through wars, God gave victory to Israel to keep his promises. God was not glorifying wars. He was keeping his promises. And I'll tell you why. When God fulfilled his promises in Jesus, there was no need for wars. Now you look at Luke 22, you realize that Jesus was arrested. One of his disciples, Peter, took a sword and cut off someone's ear. Now Jesus was not happy with this. So he told Peter to put the sword back. He healed the ear, and these were Jesus' words. No more of this. No more of wars. The promises have been fulfilled in Jesus. There was no need. God does not glorify wars. So you realize that from then on, promises were fulfilled. There was no need to protect them. So then there were no wars. Let's get back to our passage now. The difference between the distressed, indebted, and discontented people David welcomed and the valiant community we see in 2 Samuel 23, that's page 331, is striking. David's men were known for their mighty deeds. Now, here are some of the characteristics of the mighty deeds, and I'd like to go through four of them. The men who performed these deeds were from different backgrounds. They were not all from one place. Now, look with me to verse 8 of 2 Samuel 23. Joseph Bashibeth was a Tecmonite. Eliza was an Ahohite. Shammah was a Hararite. That's verse 11. And verse 20, Beniah was from Kabzeel. They were all from different backgrounds. Two, the deeds were crafted with different skills. Verse 8 and verse 18, some of the men were good with spears. Verse 10, Eliza was good with a sword. He fought till his hand froze to the sword. Verse 21, Benaiah fought with a club. So they had different skills. And then the third is, they were brave men. Their bravery was just inspiring. So you look at verse 8, Joseph defeated 800 men in one encounter. I tell you what, Superman and Iron Man will struggle to beat this record. Eliza and Shama stood their grounds to defeat entire enemies when their own army chickened out. Verse 18, Abishai defeated 300 people. Verse 20, Benaiah killed a lion on a snowy day. They were brave people. And the fourth characteristic says these deeds were powered by the Lord. Look at verse 10. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. Verse 12, and the Lord brought about a great victory. Spider-Man needs his alien powers. Iron Man needs his technology. But these men had the Lord. Hallelujah. Oh, I didn't hear any amens there. Now, wouldn't you love to be part of such a valiant community with mighty deeds? I would. If you're a Christian, you are already part of such a community. 
Jesus has not called us into his kingdom so that we can sit in church and sing hallelujah. No, it's not all there is. That's just a part of it. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, that he would build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You see, the church is a militant community whose, deeds, whose deed is to break down the gates of hell so that many will come into the saving knowledge of Jesus and into his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, Ephesians 6, 10 to 18 tells us that our deeds are not against flesh and blood. We are not fighting physical wars, no, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of the dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Our sword is the word of God. Our shield is faith. Our belt is truth. Our breastplate is righteousness. And our shoes are the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. We are called to do great exploits, not through our strength, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. Our king will use people from different backgrounds. He is not concerned with temperament, race, gender, age, social status, financial strength, or academic achievement. Our king would use any skill with God. He would use apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, people with the gifts of hospitality, people who can tarry in prayer, and people without any skills. Our king would use you whether you are fearful or fearless. Now, a few weeks ago, a few of us went for Advance 2020, which is um, a, a program that was organized for evangelists. And um, a story was told of this Christian woman who wanted to share the gospel with her neighbor, but she had no courage to do so. So one day, she went to the neighbor and honestly confessed to her that, look, I really want to tell you about my faith, but I, I'm afraid it will break her relationship. Now, this unbelieving woman then told her that, you know what, come at so-and-so time. I'm going to bake some cake, boil the kettle, and then we can have a child. She was fearful, but God used that. She was vulnerable, but God used that. He doesn't care who we are, what we have. He just welcomes us, and he just wants to use us. God is not interested in our ability as much as our availability because the victory comes from him anyway. He is our source of power. He is building the church, not us. We all, have, all we have to do is to surrender to his will, to stand firm like, these, like David's soldiers did. They stood their grounds, and God brought the victory. So, dear friends, I want to challenge you to be ambitious for our king, to work with our king. As militant soldiers of the king, will the sword of God also freeze to your hand in difficult times when others are giving up? Will you continue to pray for the unbelieving folks, even when you think all hope is lost and this one is beyond saving? Will you continue to hold on to the faith, your faith in God, when it doesn't even make sense to do so? Will you continue to depend on the Lord even when you feel, or in times when you feel strong, because sometimes when we feel strong, we think we can do things in our strength, so we forget him. We can have great deeds with our king, 
and he invites us to work with us, the Bible tells us, this can only be done through selfless dedication. So then, we will look at the final um, one, devotion to the king. Our last point. In 2 Samuel 23, 13 to 17, we see an interesting story about David's devotion to God and his men's devotion to him. And let me give you a brief background of this point in, 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 in history. So after Saul, the king of Israel, died in battle, the Philistines moved into Judah to occupy Bethlehem. At this point, David did not have his full army, so he was hiding in strongholds in the wilderness. He wasn't the king yet. He had been anointed, yes, but he was still hiding, and the reigning king was dead. So the Philistine army took over, and they were ruling things. That's why he couldn't go to Bethlehem for the water, as we would see shortly. So our story actually starts from this point, where he's in the wilderness. The Philistines have conquered the nation, and they, they've taken hold of Jerusalem and Bethlehem. One hot harvest afternoon, David expressed his thirst for water from the well near the gates of Bethlehem. If you were one of David's men, what would you do? I tell you what I would have done. I would have done one of three things. One, after David muttered, oh, I wish I had some water from the well at Bethlehem, I would have completely ignored it and behaved as if I didn't hear it. Because it wasn't a command, it was just a statement. It would be suicidal for me to go, oh, I'll just ignore it blank as if I didn't hear it. Now, knowing that this was, a, so the second reason, or the second thing I would have done, probably, would have been, because I know it's suicidal to break through the enemy lines to go for just ordinary water, for goodness sake. I'll probably just go, they were in a stronghold, I'll probably just go around the corner, get him some water and say, hey, my friend, water be water. Oh, water be water. Just take it. You see, it was ordinary water. There was nothing special about it. Um, the third thing I'll probably have done would have been now say, David, you'll be king one day, God willing. We all know that. When you're king, you have all the water in the world, so be encouraged. In fact, this means we should fight harder and, you know, so that you can become king quickly. But David's three mighty men are not like me. Immediately, David muttered those words. They exchanged looks with one another, picked up their weapons, and as if they were under a spell, they moved to Bethlehem to get the water from the well. Goodness. They put their lives in danger, broke through enemies, enemy lines, got the water, and brought it to David. What devotion to someone who, who has not yet ascended the throne, who is hiding, a fugitive. They were so devoted to him. Now, you would realize that what David did, or David's men did, sorry, what David's men did was jaw-dropping, wasn't it? But David's reaction is mind-boggling. Look, with me to uh, to Samuel 23:16 and David refused sorry but David refused to drink it instead he poured it out before the Lord this is where you all say wow wow what just happened now i have a one and a half year old called Joel 
sometimes when his two elder sisters pick a toy to play with, a particular toy, he would want that toy. So he would do everything to get that toy. Immediately he gets the toy, he would throw it away and start looking for the next toy they pick up. They pick another toy. He would want it so badly. He goes for it and he throw it away. This, this is not what David was doing here. He gets the water and just, and just throws it. No. You see, what David did here is quite interesting. He did not just collect the picture from his friends who hazarded their lives and slowly poured it away. He did not say, April fool, I was only joking. It's not real. I'm not thirsty. It's just April fool. No, he didn't. That, that, that's not what he meant at all. And he didn't, mean it, he didn't do it in a demeaning way. He did it for two reasons. Firstly, he cherished their devotion and recognized that the water was not ordinary water. These men were offering him their lives. Look at verse 17. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? Secondly, he showed his devotion to God by giving God the most precious thing he had, that is the lives of his three friends. David's friends were loyal to him and they were devoted to him as their king. David was devoted to God, his king. The greatest act of selfless devotion is what Jesus did on the cross. He humbled himself and came to earth. He died in our place and rose up to glory and now prepares a place for us. He prays for us and he serves us as our great high priest. So he saved us then, devoted to us. He's devoted to us now as well. His devotion is unmatched. His devotion to God is divine, as we see in John 5, 19 to 20, which I'm not going to read out. For the king that Jesus is, and for the things he has done for us, what kind of devotion do you think we ought to give him? A devoted person is not self-seeking, but rather considers others first. A devoted person does not need to be coerced to do things, but rather looks out for opportunities to serve. A devoted person does not complain and grumble, but rather serves cheerfully, doing all things as to God, not to people. A devoted person gives their best, gives the best of themselves and their possessions, not what they do not want. Now, if we are devoted to Jesus, our King, we will be happy to risk our lives for him. We will share the gospel with people even when we are scared to do so. We will love others when it is so difficult to do so. We will attend prayer meetings when they are boring. We will commit to God even when it hurts to do so. If we are devoted to our King, we will live a life of sacrifice. Now, I like, I like what Paul says in Romans 12, 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. 
think the proof of devotion is sacrifice. And let me say these few words in conclusion. Jesus desires that you be his and you will desire him. King Jesus is establishing his kingdom and he will want to work through us to do his deeds. King Jesus is devoted to you. Will you devote your life to him? Let us pray.